Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, everything we do and every lesson that we read over the next few weeks are going to help lead us to Luke chapter 2. Okay? And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I hope I didn't spoil the surprise for anybody. Anyway, here's a surprise. Listen to the similarities from our lesson from Exodus. There was in the same country as Horeb a shepherd abiding in the field, keeping watch over the flock of his father-in-law Jethro by night. The name of the shepherd was Moses. And behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. When the shepherd Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. And as he drew near to look, the voice of the Lord came, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And the shepherd Moses trembled and hid his face, for the glory of the Lord made him greatly afraid. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Fear not, for I have surely seen the ill treatment of my people that are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt, and this will be a sign unto you, the bush that burns with fire and yet is not consumed. What did you hear? The readings are kind of parallel, aren't they? They sound similar, and they should, really, because it's the same Lord Jesus who is present in both. In this Wednesday night series, we're going to be looking at some of the appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. The same Jesus the shepherds ran to see in Bethlehem. Um, the ones that the, the angels urged them to go and see. And uh, also, a uh, surprising number of times that uh, Jesus shows up in the Old Testament as well. Uh, only known then as the angel of the Lord. So, the pre-incarnate Jesus, Jesus before he, he took on our flesh forever, becoming true God and also true man, was proclaiming rescue and salvation of God's people in a way that foreshadowed his ultimate rescue of sinful mankind on the cross. You know, books about creatures called hobbits and boy wizards are more believable to a lot of people than our Old Testament lesson the, the tonight of a sheep herder that God speaks to by way of a mysterious bush on a remote mountainside. And then reluctantly and through a series of miraculous events, he ends up freeing millions of people from slavery. And yet that one's the true story. The interesting thing is that the commonalities in Exodus and Luke uh, are really all over the place, including and especially the Lord Jesus. Now Moses had once been a rising star in Egyptian politics. He has a forbidden Hebrew boy child. There was a uh, if your child was born, it was a boy, he was to be put to death, a kind of a uh, uh, keep a crowd to, to keep the population control, I'm trying to say. Um, but they didn't. They, remember, they put him in a little, a little boat, a little ark. Um, and he had been plucked from the Nile River, where he was found floating in that little reed basket. Um, and he was raised by Pharaoh's own daughter, 
and raised to be a prince. His birth mother was located and she was enlisted as a, a nursemaid for Moses, a task that generally lasted as long as three years. So surely during that time, his mother would have shared some stories about his heritage and his people, the Hebrew people. The story talks about a new pharaoh, which corresponds to a real world change of dynasties back about 1558 BC, the real, time, uh, real lifetime of Moses and the real life exodus of God's people, the Israelites. This new pharaoh didn't remember, didn't care uh, about the ancient promise of welcome and shelter that his ancestors had offered the Hebrews going back uh, 400 years or more, back to Joseph's day. No could have guessed that it was all going to turn out to be part of God's plan to free his people from slavery. And that everything that happened in Moses' life was just part of his preparation for his big moment, his, his burning bush call from God. Moses had received the best schooling available, all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And then one day a 40-year-old Moses found himself on Egypt's most wanted list. He came across an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave. And Moses chose which heritage he would embrace that day, killing the Egyptian, burying his body in the sand and then going on the run, wanting to disappear from public life and uh, into obscurity forever. He, Moses fled to Midian where he took on a lowly job of shepherding. Now he met a girl there, he fell in love and lived off the radar for 40 years. They couldn't have been easy years though for a former prince. Imagine a promising future leader who might have had it all, instead serving all those years as a humble shepherd. Moses learned patience. He learned humility. And he learned a lot about the land that he would be leading God's people through later on. So God was training, testing, and strengthening Moses for the years ahead. Even though at the time, it's hard to imagine that Moses could have appreciated it. And then when God was ready, when uh, God's people were ready, and when Moses was ready, uh, he called his chosen leader. Now, out tending the flocks of his father-in-law in Horeb one day, a mountain range that included a peak called Sinai, Moses spots a bush on the mountain that appeared to be on fire, but it wasn't burning up. Now, that would be a miracle in itself and worth investigating. So up the mountain, Moses goes. When he draws near, God speaks to him through the bush, calling him by name. Granted, at first, it seems like an odd way to speak to someone, doesn't it? But the encounter tells us a lot about God. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. The expression, the angel of the Lord, is often used in the Old Testament for the second person of the triune God, Christ, before he took on flesh that first Christmas. In those verses, God and Lord are used interchangeably. So we know the angel of the Lord means Jesus himself in some special manifestation of his presence. As Moses draws closer, he's told to take off his sandals because he was now standing on holy ground. Those days when people encountered a, a holy place, they would remove their sandals as a sign of deep respect. That was true in this case as well. But really, any place you encounter God becomes a holy place just by virtue of the, of, uh, the holy God's presence, doesn't it? Add to that the fact that Moses was a shepherd. His sandals had probably traveled through some pretty dirty places and stepped into some pretty unsavory stuff, and it'd be a good idea to take them off. When God first made himself known to Moses as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, Moses couldn't even bear to look up. These men were forefathers of Israel. The same God who had spoken to these men, who had been silent for hundreds of years now, was speaking to Moses. God assures him that he would rescue his people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, that he would lead them back to this very mountain to worship him. So in God's eyes, 
it was already a done deal. That he would bring them to this rich land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. It was the very land that was promised first to Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people. God was calling Moses to be the one to go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt and lead them to that land. This is the same God we stand before and that we approach and worship today, who makes himself known to us these days through his holy word, a God who promises to do great and wondrous things for us, a God who always keeps his promises. And so we have the pre-incarnate Jesus speaking to Moses. The Son of God had descended to earth just like he did at Christmas. And again, in a very physical way, he appears as a flame of fire within the branches of a bush, a light to lead Moses on a remote mountainside. An appearance that wouldn't frighten him away, but rather draw him even closer. Jesus would later call himself the light of the world. When he came down at Christmas, born of Mary, he was laid on the wood of a manger. A newborn baby, the Lord had come down again, come down to our level again. And again, on a mission to rescue and save. And again, in a joining of the temporal and eternal in a way that, that wouldn't frighten people away. Remember, no one could see God and live. We're sinners who can't stand in the presence of a holy God apart from faith in Jesus' own righteousness for us. So he came in an earthly form that we could grasp and receive. In the incarnation, the creator entered into creation in a way that sinful people could approach him without fear and without fear of being destroyed. The burning bush was a prophetic event. It foretold the time that Christ would descend into this world again to rescue and set free. This time, permanently taking on our human nature when he was born of Mary. Not in the form of a miraculous bush that burned, uh, but was not consumed. Not this time, but as God in the flesh. It would take more than just an ordinary man to save all mankind from sin. It would take a man who was also God. Now, God going with him, Moses did free the Israelites. But it would take the incarnate Jesus to rescue and save all mankind from slavery to sin. Remember, Joseph and Mary had been told, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means. God saves, or Savior. <clears throat> By his holy incarnation, Christ became the new Moses, who leads his people out of the kingdom of darkness through baptismal waters instead of the Red Sea and into the light of the promised land of his new creation. The one who appeared in the flame of fire is the same one who would one day declare, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now Moses reacts about the same way you or I probably would have if uh, we had been chosen by God for a special calling. He asked God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He's faced with his own doubts, his own lack of qualification. You know, there's no cape hiding under his robes. He knows that. He's just a man. But God's assurances seem to say that he won't need a cape. He says, I will be with you. He even gives Moses a sign as a pledge. When you have brought the people out of Egypt on this same mountain, you will worship me. This is the same place that, that God would, uh, God's people would receive his law as a, his own covenant people, Mount Sinai, where they received the Ten Commandments. So Moses is kind of thinking this through. He asks God what he should say to the Israelites in case they ask him for the name of the, the God of their fathers. Now think of what Moses would be asking of them, because he probably was. You know, it would be a matter of life or death to try and leave Egypt. They were enslaved there. 
Mostly he figured it would probably be death. Moses had left them behind 40 years earlier. He was not only out of touch, but when he left, he was an outlaw. So there weren't probably very many Israelites around who even remembered who he once was. They would be asking for his credentials. Surely many of them would probably think he was probably an imposter. How could he identify the one true God? You know, the only thing the current generation of Israelites had known was many gods. Gods of rocks and trees and animals and gods of rivers and the sun and the moon and the stars. Gods of fertility and the harvest. There was a God for everything. But the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob isn't a God of nature. This is the God of history. The God who already acted in history to create a people of his own and who is about to act again to free them from slavery and oppression who will act yet again to rescue all people on earth about 1,500 years into the future, this time, you know, through the work of his own son, Jesus, who would reveal himself as the light of the world. So God reveals his name to Moses, his own revelation of of, uh, his name and himself. He says, I am who I am. Simple, but kind of mysterious, isn't it? But there's a world of truth in those few words about a God who, who speaks of himself this way. I am, God declares. He is an I, a personal being. He can't be reduced to some indefinite force or magical power somewhere out in nature, like like many people believe. People that maybe you know who profess to believe that something is out there, but they're not really willing to take God at his word that the, about you know what that something or who that something really is. As a person, God is comparing himself Uh, to people who think, who feel, who speak, who decide, and and most of all, who act. I am who I am. It's an especially powerful statement in the biblical Hebrew. The words speak of God's absolute independence. You can't put God in a box or restrict him to a statue or a, a shrine. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I am, God says. Not I will be or I have been, but I am. God is timeless. He's constant and he's unchangeable. The past, the present, and the future uh, are all the same to him. He's in them all, in the moment. The Hebrew for the phrase, I am who I am, can also be translated, I will be who I will be, or I am that which exists. The tenses in in biblical Hebrew are different than than tenses in our English. Most of them have to do with action of some kind, the perfect tense, imperfect tense, the completed action or action that's ongoing. Um, So you get an idea about how powerful that phrase is and all the meaning that's packed into it. And then in the very next verse, after our reading ends, God says, Say to the people of Israel, the Lord, that's translated from the word Yehoah uh, or Jehovah, the, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. You know, the name was, uh, Jehovah was so holy to the Hebrew people that they wouldn't even speak it. There are a whole list of names based on God's attributes that they used instead. But the term I am made the one true God unique among all the other gods all the other people worshiped. Because Hebrew is a much richer language than English, it all sounds so mysterious. Thinking in in English, we want to ask, I am what? Well, when Jesus came, he filled in that blank. 
He used it seven times about himself. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the, the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. In John 8, 58, Jesus says of himself, before Abraham was, I am. In light of the miraculous firelight in which God revealed himself to Moses, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. In the burning bush, the Son of God is literally the light. In the Gospels, he reveals himself as a light for our darkness. He was and is and always will be for us the saving light in a world filled with the darkness of sin. The one who came down to lead us to the eternal light of heaven through faith in his righteous life, his suffering and death for our sins on a cross, and his resurrection on Easter morning. For Moses and for the Israelites he was being sent to, these qualities that God revealed were meant to reassure his people that the promises of grace and mercy that were given to their fathers were still in effect. God hadn't forgotten about them. And now he's about to demonstrate to them uh, that every one of those gracious promises would be fulfilled. They're powerful words. And they're words for us. The burning bush is a great sign of our Lord's coming at Christmas. A living prophecy, really, of his incarnation. Because we prepared it to celebrate uh, this nativity of our Lord. May God grant that he who is that flame of fire may light your hearts with a penitent faith and holy love. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all human understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.